This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. You know, it's not often that we get a good lesson from France. <laughs> I remember back during 9-11 when we were going to war and people were so mad at France that they decided they wouldn't eat French fries anymore. That doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was a long time ago now. France, though, has got it more together than we do when it comes to this wokeness. I think this is so amazing. This is from the Daily Mail. Politicians, prominent intellectuals and academics in France have voiced concern that out-of-control leftism and cancel culture from the United States is threatening French identity. They're arguing that American ideas on race, gender, post-colonialism, especially those coming from U.S. universities, are undermining French society and are an attack on French heritage. The collection of intellectuals arguing that France is being contaminated by the leftism of America was buoyed on last year after French President Emmanuel Macron appeared to side with them. This was a speech in October on the fight against separatism. Macron warned against leaving the intellectual debate to others as he cautioned of the certain social science theories entirely imported from the United States. Guess what, France? We're sick of it, too. And we have to live here. And we, we don't have anywhere else to go. So join the club. We're with you. I hope the rest of the world recognizes that there are millions and millions and millions of Americans who can't stand it either. I'm going to give you some examples of recent woke insanity, because I just think it's important to keep up with this stuff so we can see what's going on day by day by day. First of all, Aunt Jemima is gone. You know about that. The whole Aunt Jemima brand is gone. They've taken it off the box of the pancake mix and whatnot. I'm sure that'll solve lots of things. Uh, Then we have this particular story. This was from John Cass at the Chicago Tribune. The woke left wants to erase classic literature for kids. Yep, it's true. And he references the fact that when he was a boy, he really loved this book, Odysseus the Wanderer. It was written for children by a classicist. And it's the version of the Odyssey of Homer, the greatest adventure story ever told. And he goes on to say that now this kind of literature is under attack. It's under attack. The political left and the growing disrupt texts movement, as he calls it, fueled by critical race theory, once Odysseus gone. And that's not all. Just a few days ago, zealots in San Francisco began stripping offensive names from public schools. Really offensive names like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Right, because why in the world would anybody concerned about race like Lincoln? Do you know any history at all? I don't I don't even get these people. And even Democratic U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, she's been canceled, too. 
She's a living witness to her own cancellation. Now, the stripping of names are public events, but the purging of great literature often takes place quietly among woke teachers and librarians. If the classics aren't exactly banned outright or burned, they have another way to place offending literature on the back shelf out of the reach of the young where they're lost to gather dust in the shadows. Don't let the kids get that classic literature. That would be wrong. One author wrote an essay titled Weeding Out Racism's Invisible Roots, Rethinking Children's Classics in the School Library Journal, and she supports the purge. She writes, challenging old classics is the literary equivalent of replacing statues of racist figures, she writes, exposing young people to stories in which racism, sexism, ableism, anti-Semitism, and other forms of hate are the norm, may sow seeds of bias that can grow into indifference or prejudice. And so, the astounding complexity of great literature and great writers is now reduced, as are so many things these days, to angry zealotry and political correctness. Shakespeare's glaring sin is his anti-Semitic treatment of Jews in The Merchant of Venice, but isn't there value in his works? Do I really have to ask that, he says. Harper Lee's sin is creating hero Atticus Finch, the white liberal would-be savior of a black man wrongly accused. And what is the blind poet Homer's outrage? He didn't think of himself as belonging to the West the way we think of the West. But when Odysseus enters the underworld and meets the vain and deadly killer Achilles, Odysseus is told this, I would rather be a slave of a landless barbarian than king of all the dead. A Disrupt Text's leader, Lorena German, author of The Anti-Racist Teacher, explains the sweeping purge this way. So let us be honest. The conversation really isn't about universality. This is about an ingrained and internalized elevation of Shakespeare in a way that excludes other voices. This is about, of course, white supremacy and colonization. Right, because Shakespeare was such a white supremacist and he was always colonizing that bard. Why was he always colonizing? And if the new test for all literature, movies and statues and anything of historic value is 100 percent purity, all will fail. And who would grade the test? Completely right. Which brings me to the next story out of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Woke revolution looms for Minnesota schools. Minnesota parents, are you ready for the coming woke invasion of your child's public school? By 2022, as your first grader is learning that two plus two is four. Are we still allowed to say that? Because I don't think that's very woke. That's that's very narrow and very white supremacist supremacist isn't it they have these arguments on twitter i'm not making this up where people actually argue two plus two is not four and it's been you know the fault of colonialists who have put this all on us anyway the minnesota department of education intends to mandate that your little first grader should learn to recognize stereotypes bias speech and injustice at the institutional or systemic level no kidding Your middle schooler will be drilled in how his identity is a function of his skin color. Your high schooler will be required to explain that Europeans invented whiteness and that America's 19th century westward expansion was the shameful product of whiteness, Christianity and capitalism. Not what you signed up for? Well, take a look at the new K-12 social studies standards that the Minnesota Department of Education is proposing to replace the current standards, which lay out what students must satisfactorily complete to graduate from high school. If these standards are adopted, the next generation of Minnesota citizens will not only be uninformed, but scandalously misinformed about the state's and nation's history and democratic institutions. They will, however, be programmed to become the next generation of woke social actors having spent their public school years immersed in the lingo and thought world of the progressive left. 
Well, Minnesota, we already know what you're made of. We saw what happened last summer. Oh, and speaking of which, as February is Black History Month, the push to inject Black Lives Matter curriculum into America's K-12 schools is in high gear across the board. Christopher Passley over at the American Thinker writes about this. Black Lives Matter is a different matter entirely. It's Black Lives Matter, the political organization that is pushing an agenda-driven curriculum into K-12 through schools. It's an agenda that at times is not only racially polarizing, but one that calls for defunding police, disrupting the nuclear family, and replacing individualism and capitalism with an irresponsible brand of socialist globalism. When you look at the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action starter kit, it shows just how politically driven their curriculum is. Here's what the intro says. In this era of mass incarceration, there is a school-to-prison pipeline system that is more invested in locking up youth than unlocking their minds. That system uses harsh discipline policies that push black students out of schools at disproportionate rates, denies students the right to learn about their own cultures, and whitewashes the curriculum to exclude many of the struggles and contributions of black people and other people of color and is pushing out black teachers from the schools in cities around the country. And the writer says it's this very irresponsible rhetoric that causes many educators to regard BLM more as a propaganda outfit than a genuine organization seeking to educate young people to state that our school system is more invested in locking up youth than unlocking their minds is not only terribly irresponsible and untrue, but extremely demoralizing to the millions of hardworking educators around the country who have dedicated their lives to teaching children. So Consider this for a moment. We have been sounding the alarm for quite a while about things like these pro-gay curricula that are being shoved down the throats of youngsters across this country. And we've had the problem of Planned Parenthood coming in and their sex ed curricula that they're shoving down the throats of schools across the country. Now we have to worry about this. Now we have to worry about this. There is no safe harbor in the public schools for your children. They will be indoctrinated somewhere, somehow by someone, because that's what a whole host of people in this country now believe passes for education. And I reject it utterly. And it's also affecting the church. We'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. What you always have to keep in mind, you always have to keep in mind that the balkanization of America is a communist dream. They thrive on the oppressor-oppressed setup. And that's exactly what, under Obama, we started getting in the United States. And it seems to me that a lot of people have very short memories. Do you not recall how this whole thing started? It was just a few years ago, and it was under President Obama, and he really wanted to have some sort of a race war, which, you know, people were not thinking and talking about this. We have equality under the law, and we were all doing pretty well. And I'm not saying there weren't some people who were upset at certain situations. And I'm not saying there weren't situations in which people who did not deserve to be mistreated by police didn't occur. I I understand some of those things happened, but there also has been a lot of lying. There's been a lot of lying. And did we so quickly forget that Black Lives Matter already came out and said we're trained Marxists. And yet we're still a little in the dark about this as a country. And what really bugs me about this is when we look within evangelicalism at so many of these woke evangelical leaders, so many of these guys, it's amazing to me, so many of these guys actually think they're onto something new. They really do. They're acting like they went back to 1969 and just woke up for the first time. I mean, I'm not trying to use the woke thing in a funny way, but, you know, they're like, wow, wow, social justice. This is a new thing. This is great. And I'm thinking to myself, do you know that social justice has been around for a long time? It's been around for a long time, Pastor. Maybe if you read something besides the latest self-help book that you could turn into a sermon, you might actually know that. But they don't know this. They think they've discovered something new. They think that, you know, it's still back in the 1960s and they've just discovered it and they assume that you don't know anything about what's happened in the 1960s. People know what happened in the 1960s. But what happens, it's kind of like fashion. You know, you, you go out now to the stores and you're beginning to see some of the same fashions that were around in the 1980s or the 1990s. You're getting the big sweaters and the leggings. I mean, that was a big thing in the 80s. So things go in cycles. But if you don't know history, sometimes you'll latch on to something in a new package that's actually a really old error. And it's not that hard to figure out if you pick up a book now and then, the right kinds of books, of course. You don't want to pick up Howard Zinn. But if you, if you pick up some good books on the history of the social gospel and the history of social justice and what happened around the era of the Vietnam War and what happened in the mainline Protestant denominations that have decimated those denominations, you might want to stop for a moment and consider all of that and say, wow, I, I really don't want to decimate my church. Nah, these guys don't worry about that. They think this is the brand new 
new idea that is going to transform Christianity because Christianity had fallen under hard times, don't you know, before social justice. When we were all about getting people saved and evangelizing and discipling people and reaching out to the lost and when we were about doing things that were good, not only for people in the church, but sometimes outside the community in terms of founding hospitals or founding Christian schools, that was all so lame, according to these guys, because wokeness, wokeness is what is great. Now, let me give you an example of this. A new survey, this is from Christian Post, a new survey from LifeWay Research finds that less than half of Americans believe the nation's churches are too segregated, yet most believe religious leaders play a positive role in improving race relations. 42% of U.S. adults believe churches in America are too segregated. 42%. That's not too far from half the people in the United States. 42% think churches in America are too segregated. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but segregation was something that was involuntary. You had a very unfair system in which people were forced to do other things than, than white people. The blacks had to go to the certain water fountains and sit in certain seats on buses. And it wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And it was corrected. But churches are not segregated. I, I, apart from maybe one outlying church somewhere, I don't know, out in the boonies somewhere, nobody is looking at your skin color and saying, mm, you know, you, you need to leave. One way or another, I'm not even trying to say white churches with with black people or Hispanic people coming in or vice versa. Nobody is doing this. Who is who is segregating the churches? Is the government coming in and saying, I'm sorry, but you can't have church because, you know, there aren't enough people of this race. And it. it's insane. It, segregation is not the right word to be using here. And it says here that Americans are evenly split on the question of whether the nation has come so far on racial relations with 46% agreeing and 46% disagreeing. But white Americans are the most likely to say we've made significant pro- progress, while African Americans are the most likely to disagree. Well, let's go to Matt Chandler because they reference him in this particular story and a sermon that he preached in June. Village Church Pastor Matt Chandler, a darling of the Southern Baptist Convention and a good buddy of Russell Moore, criticized churches and pastors who don't want to get involved when it comes to issues of race, but would rather preach the gospel. Yes, he really said this. Here's a little bit of a setup. Listen to cut one. And here's where I want to lean in a little bit on where we find ourselves. If you'll study the civil rights movement in the 60s, there's a pattern that emerges. So the predominant leader there is Martin Luther King Jr., which we really like right now because he's dead. I have to believe that a Martin Luther King Jr. right now, he'd be a liberal Marxist socialist that everybody despises, but we'll quote him now because he's not here to offend us in the now. Uh, this is what uh, uh, Jesus means when, when he says that, that you love the prophets that are no longer with us, but you don't like the prophets that are here today, but neither here nor there. In, in the 60s, the, the civil rights movement was born out of the church. And so if you, you study Martin Luther King, like there was this pattern, they, they would meet, they would pray, they would worship, they would go over kind of the rules of the protest and, and then they would march. And, and this was a rhythm that was established by King so that it was rooted in the church, that the church let out in a very real way on the civil rights movement in the 60s. Okay. Uh, let me just point out for Matt, I don't think he's done enough reading because there were a lot of churches that 
were involved in the 60s. And he's talking about that. And now they're no longer around. They've been decimated, not because of Martin Luther King, but because they became so obsessed with the issue of social justice that they neglected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they put aside the Bible in favor of their political feelings. That has nothing to do with whether or not we should fight for people in a context of racism. Everybody's against racism. Uh, I would think good-minded, fair-minded people are against racism. But he's got this pie-in-the-sky view that, you know, today, preemptively, he's just going to slam us all. Oh, you don't like like. How do you know people don't like Martin Luther King and what he did in the 1960s? He just assumes the audience to which he's speaking is racist. And I can back this up. Listen to him go nuts after that. This is cut two. And now one of the things that has happened is the church by and large has, has refused to participate, which means that we have turned over, God help us, we have turned over what is our inheritance to dark ideologies. Like when you say, hey, we're not going to get involved. Let's just preach the gospel to that. Which, by the way, I find so hypocritical. You don't just preach the gospel of sex trafficking. You don't just preach the gospel on the issue of life and abortion. No, you act. And so it's why it's like this brain broke disjoint that's got us acting absurd and then critiquing this movement as being evil and dark when we have given up our inheritance. You cannot point out all the flaws in this current movement while you have abandoned the place that we were meant to play. You cannot point out all the, well, this means this and this believes this and that's this and that's this and ignore the sorrow and lament of 12 to 13 million image bearers in our country. You can't do that. Are you okay, Matt? I know this is back in June when he delivered this sermon, but what's he even talking about? He's just going nuts. He's going nuts. I don't know why he's going nuts, but I also don't know what he's saying. I don't know what his point is. I don't know why he's getting all bananas on his church in this video. Chill out, Matt. It's going to be okay. You know, Again, if you go back to some of his involvement on this issue, you really come away saying, I don't think you're going in the right direction here, Matt. I I think you're losing focus. And might I add that this is the same man who's president of X29, founded by Mark Driscoll. And this is a man who is good friends with Mark Driscoll. And this is a man who's had a number of abuse scandals at his church. And most recently, there was another guy who had to step down. The CEO of X29 was removed amid accusations of abusive leadership. You know, Matt, you you might want to concentrate on your own backyard and the problems in your own church before you start screaming and yelling at other people. But one more cut. This was from a while back. Matt Chandler on white privilege. Cut four. Nothing makes Anglos more angry than the idea of white privilege. But let's just talk for a second, if you'll give me just just a second. So white privilege isn't overt racism, right? Instead, it's just this unique kind of experience of life in predominant culture. So again, let's go back and talk about it. Growing up throughout your history books, if you learned anything other than white people built and made America great white, it was during the month of February, it was condensed, and it was kind of a millimeter of depth of really what other kind of ethnicities contributed to what's now modern day uh, America. And, and even if you are, and then when you open up your newspaper or you grab a magazine, you're going to see Anglos portrayed 
mostly in a positive sense, right? Um, if you go to buy your kids toys or go to buy them a little book, it's gonna be pretty easy to just find kids that look like them on the cover. So we don't know what it's like to have to look around Barnes and Nobles for 15 minutes trying to find a book about a little girl growing up that looks like our little girl or like a little boy growing up that looks like our little boy. Like we've never had to struggle with that. We we don't get anxious every time we open up a newspaper about how we'll be portrayed. We, we don't, th these, are, these are aspects of, it's an invisible air that we breathe, the type of lens that we wear. <sighs> Brother, just preach the word, will you? How hard is it? Just preach the word, don't go woke. And by the way, for those who don't know, Matt Chandler's church is in a completely white suburb next to a multi-ethnic suburb. He could have moved there and he didn't. Just saying. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Has anyone else had enough of the mask mandates? I know I have. And not only because most of the masks and face coverings we generally wear aren't effective in protecting us from contracting COVID-19, but also because I'm tired of the politics of it and how the goalposts keep moving and all the hypocrisy and the tyranny. It's just ridiculous. Now, of course, you've heard that the CDC says it might be time for you to think about wearing two masks instead of one because the virus variants present us with new threats. President Biden signed an executive order making masks mandatory for for air travel and other modes of commercial transportation. And he also signed an executive action making masks and social distancing mandatory on federal property. But guess what? The number of new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. dropped 25% last week. That's the largest weekly fall in new infections since the start of the pandemic. And Reuters reports that new cases of the virus have now fallen for four consecutive weeks to reach their lowest level since early November. But up the masks, right? What is this all about besides pleasing the technocrats? And is there a way to be free from the madness? We're going to talk about it today with Alan Stevo, who is a political contributor for The Daily Caller and The Hill, and also author of the book Face Masks in One Lesson. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Thank you for having me on. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you. What do you make of these seemingly never-ending and ever-expanding mask mandates? It just seems to be getting worse, even with the drop in cases and hospitalizations. You know, I, I almost don't even want to talk about this double-masking topic because it gives it credence and authority to even mention it. It's so preposterous. Um, it's better to almost ignore these people. Yep. Uh, they're so out of touch, it seems. And this, this talk, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't one hour after inauguration that the World Health Organization said, the way we're going to test for COVID-19 now is going to change. Um, so COVID-19 testing policies changed on January 20th from the World Health Organization to make it much harder for someone to qualify as a uh, COVID-19 case. So wow. immediately when I saw that news come out, this is for, for more than a year, 
people at that point had been saying, we're testing wrong. It's going to make this look like a much bigger problem than it actually is. Finally, January 20th, they, the World Health Organization said, okay, we're going to test differently, which <sighs> means it was, as expected, case numbers dropped. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, because we had a lot of false positives, didn't we, before pertaining to the other testing we were doing? There were a lot of people also dying with COVID instead of from COVID. We've had all those kinds of issues over the past year. You're right. And if you look, you look at Germany, Germany had a, uh, if you die from COVID, we're going to write that down. Italy had, if you die with COVID, we're going to write that down. Correspondingly, Italy had massive case numbers, people dying with uh, an average of 2.6 comorbidities, the number of something like that, 2.6, 2.8 comorbidities. Uh, Germany had a very different situation. What does the U.S. do? The U.S. says, why don't we follow the Italian model? Yeah. And, uh, and, and say, if you die, if you die with COVID, even if it's from, you know, George Floyd, George Floyd died with COVID. <laughs> right. That's true. That's actually true. And, and right. Exactly. But I don't think they're going to go with that narrative necessarily. But you're right about that. That's exactly what's been going on. I go back, Alan, and I know you've written an entire book on this face mask issue, but I keep going to one central question that I've never heard anybody adequately answer honestly in the government. If I'm not sick, why do I have to wear a mask? I'm still trying to figure that out. If I have no symptoms and we know that asymptomatic COVID-19 does not spread the way that symptomatic COVID-19 spreads, what is the rationale here? Why am I wearing a mask if I'm healthy? You are so spot on with, okay, I start my book Face Masks in One Lesson with what I think is the best study of 2020. And it actually comes from a CDC Journal of Epidemiology. And it says uh, face masks, do not work uh, to stop the spread of a respiratory virus. In fact, face masks may increase the spread of disease. It goes that far and says that. So this is from a CDC Journal of Epidemiology, May 2020. Uh, Emerging Infectious Disease is the name of the journal. Uh, Zhao, X-I-A-O, was the name of the lead author. So from that point, and for years, we've known these masks don't work for what the CDC has been saying this year they would work for. So... We, we have to go to kind of a another topic of why, if they don't work, why would anyone be forced to why would anyone be forced to wear these things? Yeah. And we're in this we're in this kind of imaginary land where where why why are they why would they make anyone wear these and how long will this continue for? We have a an asymptomatic we have asymptomatic tests out of uh, Wuhan where they, they, out of China, where they did 10 million people, um, and they couldn't find, they dug down into it. Chinese, Chinese medicine is questionable, but they dug down into it. They couldn't prove asymptomatic transmission. Um, so we have here, we have here this important division between medicine and public health. Medicine goes back 2,500 years. It says, it goes back to the Hippocratic Oath and before. It says, hey, there's individual patient and there's individual doctor, and they're working together against the world uh, on behalf of the individual patient, then you have a totally separate concept called public health. And public health emerges in the, the 1870s, 1880s, as communism was becoming more popular in Europe. This concept of public health emerged. And it's kind of medicine plus, plus, uh, plus communism together, yeah. a collectivist idea. And in doing so, it's the opposite of medicine. It, it doesn't say grandma gets to decide 
what grandma's medical treatment is going to look like. It says, oh, there's going to be a vote and the community gets to decide. And maybe grandma gets to have one vote out of the 10,000, out of the 10 million, whatever it is. So here we learn in 2020, since the eyes of March 2020, we've gotten to see what happens when you put these public health bureaucrats in charge of a country, of a society, of, a, of, a, of an economy. And there's 3,000 plus counties in the U.S., each with their own little public health. Maybe there's one bureaucrat, maybe there's a team of 50 in some counties. What happens when you put a society under that kind of control and you end up with this corona communism? Why does an, a healthy, a totally healthy person, this word asymptomatic is craziness, if you ask me. It, it's just another way to say healthy and to vilify the healthy person. It's just another way to chip away at individual liberty. That's what's happening right here. It's chipping away at individual liberty. And face masks in one lesson, it's about many things, but this book it starts with face masks. It goes into more topics like individual liberty and protecting ourselves. Well, you raise a really important point when you're discussing public health and the history of public health. And I think you're, you're right on the money about this. I am so tired of the Karens. I'm so tired of the you must love your neighbor. We get this in the church a lot where you have the woke in the church saying, don't open your church just because the abortion clinics and the liquor stores are open. Don't open your church or you're not loving your neighbor. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why can't the people who want to live their lives go to church and the people who feel vulnerable stay home. Whatever happened to that? Why can't we be autonomous anymore? You know, I uh, I had the the opportunity to live for a few years after college in, in Czechoslovakia, former Czechoslovakia as a missionary. And that was once a very prosperous place that was destroyed by communism. Yes. I worked in a church school. The church school got closed down, wasn't allowed to exist during communism. But there was something... In, in Czechoslovakia, in the USSR, there was something they could never do, and I believe that they would never be able to do it in the U.S. The, the communists, even though they were publicly atheist, the governments, the states were publicly atheist, the people would never let them close down the churches. Yep, yep, yep. And what happens in the U.S.? With the right reason. Oh, please close down our churches. Yep. The church I went to, virtue signaled as loudly as it could. I drive a long way on Sundays to find a church these days, yep. and I'm so proud that church is open. It, it's the, 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 the sheep have been separated from the goats, the wheat's been separated from the chaff. I know who's true to their values these days. 2020 has been a gift to me in that way, and I could never have grown in 10 years of effort the way I grew in 2020 as a result of the difficulties of the year. You're, you're so on the money about that. I feel exactly the same way. And as a missionary over in the you know former Soviet bloc, you're exactly right. I and mean, the Christians had a completely different viewpoint because they understood communism. That's part of what we lack in so many ways, especially in the younger generations here in the United States. But there's just so much more to talk about concerning these face masks and concerning all of these draconian rules that we're having to face. Unbelievable. We're going to come back with Alan Stevo right after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God won't have wanted me to just throw away my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. So glad to have you here and glad to have with us Alan Stevo. He's the author of the book Face Masks in One Lesson. Alan, I just love that word Corona Communism. I think that is genius. And it, it's so descriptive of what we've been living through over the past, you know, better part of a year. When you are drawing this distinction between freedom and communism or freedom and corona communism and and pointing out some of the problems where we are capitulating to the experts, so-called the technocrats who want to, you know, completely shut us down and completely mask us, two masks now, tomorrow it'll be three masks. This is something that I think is really important for people to think about because when does it end? If we were not smart enough, shall I say, or wise enough maybe to fight back against all of this madness earlier, what makes people think we'll be able to fight it in a year? What if they keep us masks for masked for good? You know, I, I hope it doesn't come to that. But where do you see things headed in light of the fact that an awful lot of Americans are acting like sheeple right now? This is this is part of why I wrote face masks in one lesson. Um, the so many people were writing me saying, hey, I'm having trouble doing this. I'm having trouble doing that. Uh, I go up to the door and I start yelling. And they tell me to go home. Why can't I get in to get my groceries? Hmm. So that was that was an important issue. Then by April, I don't know, by you know six weeks into the three week lockdown, um, they started to say, "Well, how do we reopen? Well, we're going to need a, a four month reopening plan. We're going to need need thirty eight member blue ribbon panels to to reopen society." No, that's not that's not how 
crises come to an end. That's not how pandemics end. That's not how anything comes to an end. It's not this top-down, illegitimate authority that, that says to us when it comes to an end. It's, it's each of us. Yes. It's each of us in our own lives. And, you know, there's this, this important, there's these three lines in the Bible that Western civilization is just built upon. And it comes right at the beginning, and it says, God created man in his own image. Right. In the image of God, God created him. Right. Male and female, he created them. Right? And mm-hmm. that's, upon that is the concept of individual liberty built. We are made in God's likeness. Um, so how, how does this all come to an end? It comes to an end one person at a time. It comes to an end in my own life. I'm in super lockdown land. I'm on the left coast. I can tell you I never wear a mask. I have not locked down. I go about my life the best I can. If a business is locked down, that's their business. But I continue to go about my life as best I can. And the book, Face Masks in One Lesson, is about encouraging someone you know, it's good to write. It's good to write government. It's good to be involved. These, I don't want to discourage that in any way. That that's part of how the lockdowns come to an end. But the most important way the lockdown comes to an end, the most important way the face mask mandates come to an end, is to say in your own life, "I'm done wearing that face mask. Yeah. I'm done sitting at home. I'm done keeping the kids inside instead of going to the park, instead of going for a walk, instead of going to whatever I can get away with doing." And the way in face masks in one lesson, the way I describe it. We've had so many studies in 2020 that have said the face masks are not good for people. They harm people. Right. At this point, I don't know if there's anyone who can safely wear a face mask based on what we now know. And I encourage people to have a human-to-human conversation with the manager and the place they're going. This is, this is a, it opens many doors. And I can talk more about those techniques if that interests you, but, but that's, the basis of it, really. Yeah. Um, it ends one person at a time. It's in your control. You can end it right now. You can say right now, dear listener, you can say right now, I'm never wearing that face mask again. I'm going to live to a higher standard. That's what I want. It can end right now in your life. Okay. Now, I want to get on this because this is a really important point. When you say you live on the left coast and you're not wearing a mask and you're not abiding by the lockdowns, I salute you. But how are you getting away with it? Because even here where I am in the Dallas area, you have to wear the masks. If you go to a store, they have the signs in the window. Is it a matter of invoking a medical exemption? Surely you've been confronted at some point. How are you managing it? You know, we, we treat service providers almost as machines, as transactions. And if you can have a conversation with them where you say, hey, I need this, there's a good chance they're going to give what you need to you. Hmm. Um, and, and there's a, a phrase that I use that works very well that thousands of people have written me that it works well for them. And it's, I cannot wear a face mask safely. I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. You say that, I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. This, this, I'm not asking anyone to lie. These things are no good for you. The studies are coming out over and over again. How much CO2 is in there? What it does to your kids that they can't see your, your face? Yeah. What it's doing to, to people's interaction with each other, the, the splits in society? There are so many studies. This, no one should be wearing this thing who's healthy. There's no question about this at this point. So I'm unable to wear face masks safely, and I'm not I'm not asking you to storm Omaha Beach. I'm not telling you that's going to protect your freedom. I'm not saying spend your Christmas in a fetid French trench. I'm not saying that's going to protect your freedom. But if you can have a three-minute conversation, how many stores do you go to in a week? 10, 25? 
it's not it's not thousands. If you can have a three minute conversation with the manager at each store, you're probably going to get through that door no problem, and you're probably not going to have to have that conversation for months. I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. I'm thinking about coming by at two p.m. What can you do for me? I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. I'm out in the parking lot. I'd like to come in in about three minutes. What can you do for me? Let the person speak. That's true, though. I mean, when you're citing the CO2 being trapped behind the masks and some of the, you know, the dangers of contracting other kinds of infections because you've got, you know, the bacteria there on the mask. We've heard a lot about that. That's true. I think, you know, and I get the sense uh, and I know what's going on here in the area where I live. People have had it. But they're scared to go first. They're scared to say, I'm going to take it off because they don't want to get cited. They don't want to get publicly shamed. They don't want a Karen to jump out behind a wall and scream at them and then end up on social media. And I think that that's important. Just talking to some of those store managers and saying what you've said, I think that's good. And, you know, along with that, Alan, when you look at people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's changed his position I don't even know how many times. He's gone back and forth and inside out all over the place with his COVID-19 recommendations. We were supposed to be free once we got vaccinated, right? And there'd be vaccines, and now there are several vaccines, and millions of people are getting their vaccinations. And you still have some of the the experts talking about the fact that just because you have a vaccine doesn't mean you can stop wearing the mask. I really think we're going to end up at a point where people really have had enough. I mean, I think they've been sick of it, but I think this is really becoming important advice for people that a lot of people are ready to fight back on this. They're just not sure how to do it without, you know, being shamed on social media. And I think that's an awful lot of it. Hey, you know what? You might get, you might get a little bit of tension. Here's the thing. If you'll wear the face mask, you're going to take the vaccine. If you know how to say no to the face mask, you're building some muscle. You're going to be able to say no to the vaccine. You're going to be able to say no to worse ideas, whatever those may be. When they come along and say, we're going to deport the next group of Jews, you're going to be able to stand up and say, you're not deporting my neighbor. Mm. You get out of here. Mm. If you can't, if you're going to wear the face mask, you're going to say yes to so many bad things. You're going to say yes to closing the church, like many people did. Well, you're right about that. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing is you say life is a risk. You think about this. Life is a risk. Everything you do is a risk. You know, people fall and die in bathtubs. People trip and fall on their kitchen counters. I mean, all kinds of household accidents kill people every year. Car accidents kill people every year. Life is a risk, but you have to take calculated risks. And if we're going to return to individual freedom and autonomy, that ought to be in the hands of the individual. That seems to be your main point. The individual and the individual's doctor ought to be preeminent here, not some kind of public health technocracy in which we just wait for Fauci to change his mind as he's yucking it up in the baseball stadium without his mask while people are going, hey, wait a minute, what just happened here? You're Mr. Mask and you're not even wearing one. You are you are so right about that. So in, in face masks in one lesson, I present the way it takes 10, 15 minutes to read. Hey, try these techniques. It's going to be easy for you. It's going to take a little courage but you don't have to go yelling at anyone. Keep it calm, and it works. And then the rest of the book, it's a long book. It's got lots of different sections. At the grocery store, what do you do? At the doctor's office, what do you do? At school, at work. If you want to go to jury duty, what do you do? I go through all these things. You don't need to read that whole thing. You can if you want. But that's, that's the idea there, to just kind of be more human with each other. 
Well, I think it's really important that people are able to learn how to go through this labyrinth that's been created by all the chaos of Corona communism. I'm telling you, Ellen, I love that word. It's just perfect. And I think that's really important for people to listen to what you've had to say here. Again, the name of the book is Face Masks in One Lesson. Alan Stevo with us. Alan, so good to have you here. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a joy. All right. You take care and stay healthy. Thanks for being with us, everyone. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Mefford Today.